I think it is a commentary about the boundaries of defamation law, but it's also a much bigger commentary about the way that disinformation is incentivized and uh, rewarded and amplified in our uh, sort of current modern media landscape. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 16th, 2022. Today, we're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on the online information ecosystem. And we're talking about efforts to use a perhaps unexpected tool to counter misinformation and disinformation, defamation law. If you loaded up the internet or turned on the television somewhere in the United States over the last two months, it's been impossible to avoid news coverage of the defamation trial of actors Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, both of whom sued each other over a dispute relating to allegations by Heard of domestic abuse committed by Depp. In early June, a Virginia jury found that both had defamed the other. The litigation has received a great deal of coverage for what it may say about the fate of the Me Too movement. But the flood of falsehoods online around the trial also raises questions about how useful defamation law can really be in countering lies. Evelyn Dueck and I spoke with Ronell Anderson-Jones, the Lee E. Teitelbaum Professor of Law at the University of Utah College of Law, and an expert on the First Amendment and the interaction between the press and the courts. Along with Larissa Lidsky, she's written about defamation law, disinformation, and the Depp Heard litigation. We talked about why some commentators think that defamation could be a useful route to counter falsehoods, why Ronell thinks the celebrity litigation undercuts that argument, and the few cases in which claims of libel or slander really could have an impact in limiting the spread of lies. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 16th. Defamation, disinformation, and the Depp Heard trial. So there's been a lot of conversation about the Depp Heard trial lately, um, and a lot of that is gossip and rumors and, and flat out falsehoods. So I think it would be really helpful to start with a really basic overview, 101 of the legal issues here, and talk about sort of the posture of this. So who was on trial for what and what did they have to prove? Yeah, so the case was initially a defamation suit brought by Johnny Depp against his ex-wife, Amber Heard, a defamation suit arising out of statements that she made in an op-ed that was published in the Washington Post. And in this Post opinion piece, she made reference to herself uh, as a a figurehead, a person, a public figure who had become a, a face of domestic abuse. And he, although not named, claimed that this uh, harmed his reputation, this was defamatory against him, and brought a libel suit against her. She subsequently countersued for uh, defamation arising out of a series of statements that were made by Depp and by uh, folks who worked for Depp, suggesting that she was a hoax artist. Uh, And she said that that was false and defamatory about her. So in both of these instances, we had public figures who were suing for defamation, uh, who had to meet a very high uh, bar. The U.S. constitutional standard here says that they had to show uh, not only that what was said about them was false and that it harmed their reputations, uh, but also that what was said was said um, with knowing falsity or reckless disregard for the truth. Uh, not that it was just sort of sloppy or inadvertent or negligent, essentially that it was a purposeful lie. So we had um, suit and countersuit, both rising and falling on these suggestions about the uh, about what went down 
in their now dissolved marriage. And so a lot of the evidence that played out at the trial was evidence about abuse, physical, emotional, sexual abuse, and the direction of that abuse, who abused whom. I think that regular Lawfare podcast listeners might be a little surprised that we're covering this. I think it's fair to say that we're we're not the uh, the go-to podcast for celebrity gossip. You know, we tend to talk about technical issues, nerdy legal questions. Can you explain for someone who hasn't been following this story at all and doesn't really know the main players, why does this story matter? Why should we care about it? Well, it matters a lot because uh, defamation law has become has come front and center in a wider conversation about First Amendment doctrine in this country. And it comes on the heels. So firstly, I think we should note, it's a surprising result. Libel cases don't go to trial with any frequency. Uh, They settle out of trial in part because most people who are bringing defamation suits prefer not to have all of the details of a lie that was told about them played out in public again at a um, at a trial level. Uh, this suit was obviously um, motivated by differing concerns, and it is it is also the case that libel suits that have to meet this very strict actual malice standard, particularly, do not go to trial because they are widely viewed as uh, largely unwinnable. Uh, the, the bar is so high, it's so difficult for public figures to prevail that they're often advised not to go to trial, uh, not to uh, sort of uh, bring these things before a jury. So it's it's important in the sense that it uh, represents something that doesn't happen very often. It doesn't happen very often that we have uh, public figure libel suits that go to trial, and it definitely doesn't happen very often that we have public figure libel suits uh, that are won at trial. Uh, But this is all also situating itself within a wider conversation that folks are thinking about in terms of the First Amendment jurisprudence. In dissenting from denial of certiorari in a case last year, a couple of justices of the Supreme Court, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas, uh, suggested that the court should take a case to reconsider New York Times versus Sullivan, the foundational uh, First Amendment precedent in defamation law. And interestingly, one major premise uh, of b- sort of both of their critiques of Sullivan is that the you know, changing social media dynamics and the accompanying disinformation crisis that are happening in our society mean that uh, sort of democracy preservation may now actually require rethinking Sullivan in order to serve those anti-disinformation goals. So this case is a really interesting one for the way that it situates itself at that uh, that intersection between disinformation and defamation, and for the insights that it gives us about the interrelationship between them. Yeah, so we definitely want to come back to New York Times v. Sullivan. It is, after all, um, why we got you, the First Amendment expert, onto the podcast uh, to talk about it, because there's so many issues raised here. Um, But before we get into the really nitty-gritty of of the sort of legal landscape, let's sort of close out or talk about how this case in particular played out. So I think the verdicts were a little tangled um, or, you know, difficult to follow if you weren't following it really closely. What did the jury find? And you mentioned that you were a little bit surprised at the outcome. So what surprised you about it? It's surprising in a couple of ways. I mean, firstly, it's surprising because there were, because we have public figures winning. The jury uh, found for Depp on multiple claims, uh, in essence, uh, that uh, Amber Heard, his ex-wife, had told deliberate lies that were damaging to his reputation in that op-ed. 
uh, and awarded uh, what they, they would have given him $15 million, $10 million in compensatory and $5 million in punitive, uh, although Virginia has a cap. And so that was instantly reduced by the judge. But uh, interestingly, uh, they also found for Heard uh, on one of her claims, one assertion that she made that um, she was subjected to a knowingly false reputation harming lie uh, and awarded her $2 million. And in some respects, uh, folks are sort of watching it closely think of those are a little bit contradictory, right? Uh, that, that they were each suggesting that the other was abusive in their relationship and that the jury would find that both of them had lied either individually or through their agents. But that's uh, the result of it. And b- because Depp prevailed on all of the claims that he brought uh, and because he walked away with significantly more money, Depp fans in the aftermath were sort of gleeful. Uh, and um, those who saw it as a a sort of spotlight on the question of the Me Too movement and uh, the, the sort of centerpiece that Heard and her counsel had, the ways that she had, they had highlighted this, were sort of deeply concerned about, uh, about that result. But uh, in the end, what we have is two defamation claims, both won, at least in part, and both won by public figures. So I think before we we sort of unpack everything that, that you've set out, I do want to give a picture for maybe listeners who haven't been following like just what the information environment around this trial was like over the six weeks that it took place. So from my perspective, at least uh, as someone who sort of wasn't following it closely, I couldn't get away from it. News about it was absolutely everywhere. You know, even if I tried to avoid it, every website that I loaded, I would get served suggested content. You know, it was in the top five stories on the New York Times, the Washington Post. Um, I happened to be on YouTube yesterday, and one of the top recommended videos was like three great comebacks from Johnny Depp during the trial. There's also Mm -hmm. been a, a huge amount of reporting about how on TikTok in particular, fans of Depp, um, as since you you mentioned the sort of fan culture around this, just posted an unbelievable amount of content mocking Heard and lionizing Depp and sort of making memes out of the trial. So you've written in in this piece in Slate, you, you describe uh, a tsunami of distortions and disinformation. What did that look like from your perspective? I, I would ask if it's typical for a defamation trial. My <laughs> sense is no. Yeah, well, I mean, the, t- the typical is that there aren't defamation uh, suits of this sort that move to this stage, but it's also um, not typical even for those that do. And in part, this is a ve- this is something of a unicorn, right? Uh, people moving forward on something uh, that uh, other folks would not want to make public. Uh, and uh, in a way that uh, sort of leads us to conclude only that they very much, uh, that Depp in particular in bringing the suit, very much wanted uh, to make this public and to use it for its publicity purposes um, as much as, or very much about the court of public opinion as much as it is about the court of law. And so a part of what we see in the perfect storm here is this sort of star-studded um, lineup of witnesses, a series of uh, quite salacious stories about you know, vengeful defecation in the marital bed and a message written in severed finger blood and cigarettes extinguished on human faces. It's a case that has testimony that features these kind of really like prurient glimpses into the extent to which, you know, rich people um, own and heedlessly destroy their property and sort of, you know, lurid tells of drug abuse and physical and verbal and sexual assault. And from there, it's a very short step to these incredibly unfounded conspiracy theories on sites like uh, YouTube and TikTok and um, viral but deeply misleading clips and memes. Uh, there's 
there was court TV coverage that had cameras from um, all different angles, right? So you could get everyone's expression about everything at all times. And what this leads to is this disinformation environment that was a sort of fan base driven, uh, but also potentially taken advantage of by other folks with other agendas. So, uh, you know, Heard blows her nose um, and uh, it turns into a meme that she's snorting cocaine on the stand or a person who bears passing resemblance to uh, Heard's uh, lawyer is appears in a picture from one of Johnny Depp's premieres and it becomes this whole uh, secondary story about how she had secretly taken the case out of love for Depp and wanted to tank the case. You know, Depp doodles and it's deemed adorable with uh, cartoon hearts. He adjusts a phone cord um, for his lawyer, and it's seen as this sort of romantic, chivalrous gesture. Uh, there are people uh, reenacting testimony in uh, sort of mocking ways or reading text exchanges with you know, reverence or sometimes lust. Uh, and so uh, it becomes this uh, very caricatured situation really quickly, right? Um, grins and smirks and body language analysts and um, you know, trial-themed dance-offs. And uh, some people are in it just sort of for the clicks or likes or the branding opportunities, right? So there are loads and loads of people who are quite obviously just trafficking off of it. Uh, lots of people who used to have content of some other sort shifted over to this content because they they saw how valuable it was and how uh, viral it would be. So we had lots and lots of sort of influencers turned court commentators that were happening here. But we also saw uh, folks taking advantage of it for other sorts of reasons. So um, men's rights activists and right-wing media figures, attackers of mainstream media who are working hard uh, to um, build fan bases and to take advantage of it to lay a foundation for other reasons. So it uh, really did become this kind of font of disinformation in a really complex and widespread way. Yeah, I think that paints an, <laughs> a really helpful picture of just how extreme and, you know, frankly, distressing the information environment has been over the past few weeks around this. But let's go back to the legal issues that we teased around New York Times v. Sullivan. So you write in your slate piece that the trial came at a moment of contentious debate about defamation law, specifically debate about whether the First Amendment gives too much protection to defamatory speech. And you know, New York Times v. Sullivan is perhaps one of the most famous cases in American law. Um, and if people don't know the details, they may well have heard of the words actual malice um, and, you know, understand that they mean something really important about the First Amendment. You know, it is one of the iconic cases in, you know, being representative of the exceptionalism of the First Amendment, I think it's fair to say. So can you describe what the status quo is before we get to how it might change? What is the rule from Sullivan and what does it mean as a, as a practical matter for defamation actions here? Yeah, the Sullivan rule, I mean, I think you're right. I, I, New York Times versus Sullivan is sort of the Brown versus Board of Education of First Amendment law, right? A foundational principle set forth in which the court essentially constitutionalized American uh, speech tort. Uh, it, it constitutionalized the law of defamation. And it said, we have a set of concerns about the ability of particularly uh, powerful people, uh, public officials and public figures, to weaponize defamation law in a, uh, in a way that uh, shuts down speech on matters of public concern. And uh, the fact pattern in New York Times versus Sullivan uh, really sort of gives us a sense of why they thought that would happen. It was happening in the, in the sort of throes of this difficult and often violent struggle for civil rights in the American South. 
you know, activists were engaged in this civil disobedience and the story of their movement was carried through the nation through this kind of handful of prestigious northern newspapers, especially the New York Times. And the Times carried this full page editorial advertisement and found itself um, subjected to a, um, a series of, but uh, particularly this particular um, defamation suit over some very minor inaccuracies and um, subjected to staggering at the time, you know, a half million dollar jury verdict um, was enough to, to really paralyze the news operations of an organization. And in fact, the New York Times did pull coverage from Alabama for the better part of a year as a result of a series of these um, defamation actions that were quite clearly aimed to do just that, uh, to shut it up. And so the Supreme Court um, held unanimously in Sullivan that um, in these sorts of instances where we have a public figure, a public official uh, was the Sullivan standard, a public official who wants to bring a libel suit um, for this uh, conversation about their, um, their work as a public official has to meet this actual malice standard. So in addition to proving the falsity, the burden, the burden is on them to prove the falsity by clear and convincing evidence. And the burden is on them to prove so-called actual malice. Actual malice is a terrible phrase uh, for what <laughs> is really going on here, because it doesn't mean either malice in the way that we think about it or actuality in the way that we think about it. But it is essentially a very high standard of fault uh, that the speaker uh, of the defamatory words wasn't just negligent, but rather uh, spoke with knowing falsity uh, or with reckless disregard for the truth, a sort of high degree of awareness of the probable falsity. And absent that, the court said, a defamation is not a tool that you can use. Uh, we want there to be a sort of vibrant exchange of ideas, and we want to make sure that um, conversations on matters of public concern can flourish. And false statements are sort of inevitable in free debate, the court said. And so um, commentators in that space, need there to be, uh, you know, breathing space. Uh, provable truth is just sort of too great an onus to put on people who are criticizing the government or the powerful because it will cause them to self-censor rather than conveying like the important gist on a matter of public concern. And as a First Amendment matter, we now have that folded into the defamation standard and required of all people who are public figures or public officials bringing those suits. We want to make sure we go back to this question of sort of uh, where Sullivan stands now um, and whether its position might be shaky. But before we do that, I want to talk about what defamation looks like in terms of its relationship with disinformation under existing law. Um, so you write in Slate that there is this growing idea that defamation litigation could be used to tamp down disinformation. How, how is it that proponents of this idea argue that it would work, given that, as you just said, uh, there is a, a really high standard uh, when a public figure is involved? Yeah, it's it's a little unclear um, how they think it would work. Uh, and Justice Gorsuch, in fairness, sort of Justice Gorsuch, the, the most that we've gotten out of Justice Gorsuch about this is this um, sort of vague, um, hand-waving um, dissent from denial of certiorari in a case where he said, I would, I would urge us to take a case that reconsiders Sullivan. And he says, um, the reason, among the primary reasons that I would do so, is that I think there are some grave risks that are posed by rampant so social media disinformation, right? Our, our political and social stability are at risk. Uh, and to be clear, I agree with him on that starting premise. <laughs> uh, I, I think that those concerns are well-founded. 
Um, there is something of a sort of disconnect between the concerns that Gorsuch articulates and the doctrinal revisions that he considers. But in essence, I think the sort of baseline principle is that he uh, he thinks that uh, we have this sort of new media environment that the sort of evidence suggests to us is um, facilitative of a spread of disinformation and that that um, widespread disinformation means that we need to crack down on lies, right? At base, we need to crack down on lies and have more tools for combating lies. And because in his view, defamation is one such tool, uh, it would make sense for us to unwind some of the protection that Sullivan gives to lies. And as a result of that, the suggestion is that disinformation would be diminished. And so I think we've kind of gotten to this, but what is it about the Depp Heard trial that you think undercuts that argument? Yeah, I mean, I guess lots of things. <laughs> I think the I think the argument is undercut in a series of ways. I mean, as an important starting matter, this doesn't really represent anything close to the full scope of disinformation that is um, at the, the core of the concerns. I think the core of the concerns for Gorsuch, right? Um much of the most problematic disinformation that's at the core of our disinformation crisis just isn't itself defamation. Huge swaths of the rampant lies that have caused the gravest concern, you know, as to elections, or public health or otherwise, that they're not attacks on the reputation of any individual or entity. They, I mean, they lie to be sure, but they don't defame, right? I, I mean, occasionally the, the two do overlap. You know, if we have a lie about a particular postmaster backdating mail-in ballots or a particular election official violating the law um, or a particular you know, voting machine company committing fraud, then defamation litigation might be a useful pro-democratic tool in the ways that Gorsuch apparently envisions. But there's no reason to believe that disinformation as a wider phenomenon is going to serve itself up in a, in a way that merits a defamation claim. And indeed, we know as a matter of some significant research in this area that very often doesn't, right? That um, a lot of social media disinformation is generated by a very small number of initial producers for money or political gain and then uh, disseminated broadly on platforms by these armies of others who make broad claims that are false, but not harmful to any individual reputation. So as a starting matter, the fact that we so rarely get disinformation served to us in the form of defamation, I think is a big principle. I think additionally, as a very practical matter, the sort of Depp Heard trial shows us that um, the reason that we got this, this sort of unicorn of a situation is that there were two very rich people involved. Uh, the online social media mobs that are out there disseminating lies are not actually natural targets for defamation suits because they're often anonymous and they're uh, also not attractive targets for these suits because they lack the assets to pay damages. And of course, the uh, social media platforms themselves are statutorily immune from these actions under uh, Section 230. So there's really sort of no serious disinformation scholar who thinks the best, most efficient primary way to address disinformation as a crisis is through these kind of series of time-consuming, expensive libel litigations against the really kind of shallow pockets of individual social media users that Justice Gorsuch sees polluting the public discourse. But the Depp Hurt situation adds to this a really interesting dynamic, which is that it turns out that disinformation can be compounded and advanced by defamation suits rather than cured by it. And we definitely saw that here. All those examples that we just described was basically this defamation suit served as a platform, a, a launch pad for a wide variety of secondary 
disinformation. And, you know, we've known for a long time in defamation law that this was the case, that something that we've, um, we call the, the Streisand effect. It comes um, from a case involving Barbara Streisand where she, there were some photos she really didn't want um, circulated and she sued uh, about the circulation of them. And then of course they got much, much more attention than the individual first audience might have given. And the same is of course true here. As you described, right, the whole country inescapably exposed uh, to these sets of um, lies or falsehoods um, that were at issue in this defamation case. And, uh, and so the idea that we emerge from this with more truth is sort of laughable. Uh, it's just not a tool that is advancing that goal in any meaningful way. I think that tension that you're talking about between, you know, defamation requiring individual harm, but many of our concerns in this area really being about societal harm or, or broader harms is a really helpful example of one of my own personal bugbears, which is sort of this weakness of the individual rights frame in thinking about content moderation harms more generally. You know, the idea that if we just gave users more appeals, um, more uh, reasoning, more capacity to flag things, that it would solve so many of the harms that we see appearing on social media because it's often not actually an individual that's harmed by many of these things. Like, you know, like disinformation more generally might be one example or is one example. Uh, things like, you know, terrorist recruitment is another example where the people that are seeing it are maybe not the kinds of people that are going to be flagging it or um, things like violent content as well. So I think it's just a really helpful example of something that plays into that dynamic. But right, I agree. And I also think, right, um, sort of our um, inability to think about this as a wider problem with our sort of architecture of communication, rather than sort of laying it all on the shoulders of uh, individual speakers and communicators and amplifiers is a really, it's, you know, like, like bringing a knife to a gunfight, right? Or bringing, bringing a defamation suit to a disinformation fight. Uh, it strikes me as, uh, it's not to say that it might not be a tool uh, towards uh, tackling lies that pollute our public discourse, but the idea that uh, all of this sort of fails to recognize that our public square is infected, right? By these kind of coordinated campaigns to spew falsehood and that they are motivated by you know opportunism and politics and profit and uh, so uh, when, you know, when when I hear people saying you know well, all we need to do is train people up to spot misinformation right that again just puts people uh, puts the onus on right sort of random individual old lady on Facebook right that she's going to solve our disinformation problem and um, sort of failure to recognize that what's happening here is bigger and more complicated than that. Like, I would love, <laughs> I would absolutely love if it were the case that, I mean, I'm, I'm a defamation law scholar. I would love it if defamation law was the, the sort of, you know, hero that would um, swoop into this space and solve all the, would that it were true, right, that we could do this. But I think that we have to sort of take in the lay of the land and acknowledge uh, that the problems are both bigger and more complicated, and also that the tools can't rise and fall on a series of individual exercises of combat. Although I do love the idea of sending out the bat signal for the defamation law scholars. <laughs> would be a wonderful way of solving this. Yeah. Our moment has finally arrived. You've been waiting, sitting at the ready uh, to tear off your shirt and reveal the superhero costume. Uh, I'm sorry, you're going to have to wait just a little longer. Although maybe we can talk about some of the counterexamples because I think there maybe have been a few that might make people you know, be more hopeful about this. Um, things like 
the lawsuit that Dominion Voting Systems brought against Fox News after the cable channel reported that its uh, voting machines worked incorrectly during the 2020 election, or perhaps Alex Jones and his Sandy Hook trutherism. You know, Jones, for example, was found liable in both Texas and uh, Connecticut state courts for his lies about the Sandy Hook shooting um, and will have to pay damages. So, you know, these maybe uh, might give people hope. And I'm, I'm wondering whether, you know, but on the other hand, they do make people nervous because of many of the things that you've been talking about, about, you know, the importance of robust defamation laws. On the other hand, of course, these are really abhorrent and damaging lies. So do you think there is a way to, you know, uh, have the good and, and not the bad? Is there a way to craft legal rules here to be able to use defamation for good uh, without too much risk of abuse? Or is it just not going to be worth uh, the candle? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you that we have um, some emerging examples that suggest to us that in those instances in which the stars align, right, and something that is at the nub of a wider disinformation narrative also um, got delivered in the, into the public sphere in a way that was targeted enough that it was an attack on an individual reputation, right, that it can serve itself up in this particular format, uh, can be a mechanism that really at least acts to at least partially dislodge those uh, disinformation narratives. Uh, the Smartmatic and Dominion cases uh, that were brought against um, not just uh, Fox News, but also Newsmax and uh, Giuliani uh, and others in um, former Tr President Trump's uh, sort of inner circle, they were the, the only thing, really, that we saw move the needle in terms of some of the coverage on some of those networks, right? Those networks were consistently uh, presenting people in their programming who were advancing lies about uh, the 2020 election. And it was really only the filing of that suit that reigned in some of that. We saw in a fairly immediate aftermath of the filing of those defamation lawsuits, uh, statements being read on air on um, the smaller of those networks. Uh, was Lou Dobbs uh, lost his show, essentially, right? He was a, uh, had uh, some of the highest viewership of any program on Fox News and was uh, canceled by uh, the network. Uh, we saw uh, network uh, representatives sort of pushing back on air in ways that they hadn't previously. So, right, suggesting that there's some kind of tool here that might have an effect. Um, and I, I do think that defamation law, um, uh, protect democracy is sort of working on a series of what they think of as uh, pro-democracy defamation actions um, involving, you know, various election officials who faced some pretty specific attacks on their reputation in uh, relationship to the so-called big lie. Even in those cases, I've got to say, and in the Sandy Hook case in particular that you describe. Uh, I continue to question, right, whether uh, the truth can overtake the lies in the mind of the sort of staunchest of the partisans that are uh, involved in some of those situations. But I'll also point out, and I think it's really important, that all of those cases are cases that will be litigated under the New York Times versus Sullivan standard and may well win under that standard, right? Which suggests that this, the Sullivan uh, balance might well work for us, right? Might well uh, strike that right kind of balance between protection of public discourse and dialogue on matters of public concern while still snuffing out and uh, penalizing uh, knowing falsity. So like to the extent that the concern here is active defamatory disinformation campaigns, right? Sort of wholly invented, consciously distributed conspiracy theories and lies that do uh, real harm to uh, individual or entity reputations. This material 
already falls outside the scope of the Sullivan protection. That material is by definition uh, distributed with knowing falsity or reckless disregard for the truth. And so Sullivan doctrine, as it now stands, envisions liability for these communications. And I, uh, I think the, the occasional, I'm, I'm an ardent free speech uh, activist, right? I, uh, I believe uh, fervently that democracy needs the kinds of protection that Sullivan offers. But I also think that uh, the occasional win under the Sullivan standard demonstrates its efficacy. And so uh, we might be seeing the arc of that in some of the examples that you've described. I think that gets to you know, something I've been thinking about these cases, which is that, you know, in the the election litigation, for example, uh, the Alex Jones litigation, the cases are just so extreme. I mean, the the Dominion and Smartmatic lawsuits, for example, uh, like you said, there's this sort of period right around the election when Dominion and Smartmatic threatened to sue. Some of the networks back off. I think I remember reading in one of the filings and I think filed by Dominion, the complaint that, you know, Giuliani kind of, Rudy Giuliani kind of backs off and stops making, you know, directly falsifiable claims about Dominion's supposed culpability in alleged election fraud. And then, you know, two days later, he's right back at it again. (laughs) And it, it really just underlines, you know, how unusual and extreme, I think, the the sort of quality of bad information is right now in this space, perhaps, that that these suits are in a place where they can be successful to begin with. Is that fair, do you think? No, I mean, I think that's right. But part of, part of what's interesting about this most recent arc of cases that fall within that space is that they're surprising to defamation scholars, both as to their legal contours, but also as to their facts, right? They're just, uh, they're, they're hypotheticals that we really could not, uh, I mean, if you had handed me the complaint, uh, the Smartmatic and Dominion complaints that exist right now, and uh, had said to me, right, uh, um, teach this to your students, you know, four or five years ago, teach this as a hypothetical of a network that's accused of the kinds of things that the, um, that these networks are being accused of, of um, sort of knowing that these things are not true and moving forward in ways that amplify or encourage um, this kind of dialogue in order to win back uh, view. That's the allegation, right? The allegation in the in the complaint is that Fox and other uh, networks sort of knew that this was false and advanced made a decision to advance this narrative in order to win back pro-Trump viewers. That kind of fact pattern isn't one that we really, <laughs> that I would have cooked up uh, as a hypothetical um, for my media law students in the past. And so thinking about what disinformation looks like uh, and how it maps onto defamation fact patterns, I think is, I think it is a commentary about the boundaries of defamation law, but it's also a much bigger commentary about the way that disinformation is incentivized and uh, rewarded and amplified in our uh, sort of current modern media landscape. And so if we think about, you know, how defamation lawsuits can be used to potentially be effective against disinformation in this sort of very, very specific limited handful of cases. How how do we judge whether that would be effective? Like what what's standard? I mean, because I can imagine, you know, you could say there's a deterrent effect um, that we'd see fewer falsehoods floating around in the future because would-be liars would be scared off or, uh, you know, Infowars, for example, Alex Jones's outlet is 
uh, doesn't have money anymore, so it can't put out falsehoods like that. You could say that there's a a benefit in having you know entities like Newsmax and OANN having to put out these statements, essentially walking back lies about Dominion and Smartmatic. You could say there's maybe a, a sort of corrective effect in having a court say, you know, actually the thing that Alex Jones is saying didn't happen really did happen, and and here's a you know a judge putting that into the record. Do you have a sense of you know, how, how we should think about what success would look like? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, as a starting matter, uh, the deterrent effect that you just described is is very much a double-edged sword, right? It's exactly, I mean, like sort of rephrased, it's the concern that the Sullivan Court, the unanimous Sullivan Court had, right? Uh, that the sort of staggering costs to the operation of both the press function, but also the sort of the general flow of public discourse if we have this chilling effect where people are um, too strongly deterred against, con- I mean, this is this is the concern that Amber Heard and her allies are raising right now, right? Uh, why would anyone come forward and engage in public discourse on this very important matter of public concern if this sort of sort of Damocles uh, hangs above them as the po- the possibility that it will fall at any moment and they. Um, might um, find themselves um, subjected to staggering damages for defamation. So the deterrent effect, like we want it so badly um, for people who uh, are would-be disseminators of large-scale conspiracy theories and lies, but we also have to craft a doctrine that doesn't, that, that sort of, that we can't have deterrent effect be pulling the laboring or in such a significant way that we shut down that kind of dialogue. The corrective effect, I think, is the really interesting question, right? Whether we're having the corrective effect or not. Um, Like, I'll just give away a little piece of the story here. Um, My co-author, Larissa Litsky, and I crafted a big piece of the uh, the piece that we uh, published in Slate uh, well before uh, the verdict was handed down. And one of the things that we discovered was that it didn't matter (laughs) how that, what we had to say about it was going to be the same regardless of what the jury's verdict was in that case, because what the nation thought about this situation was already baked. People already had decided um, that uh, Johnny Depp was a hero and that Amber Heard was a villain. They had already decided, they had already uh, so made their determination on the basis of the memes and the new TikTok accounts and uh, the, the sort of constant serving up of that information on YouTube and elsewhere. And so questioning how effective defamation law is in as an anti-disinformation tool also requires us to ask hard questions about whether it can serve that corrective, have that corrective property. And in at least some instances where the power of the social media disinformation on the other end of it is so significant, think there are good reasons to believe that a judge announcing that something is the case, right? A judge announcing that Sandy Hook um, was not a set of parents who were actors is not going to dislodge from that population the viewpoint that um, they were. And it's just um, a limitation of the tool and a limitation of the current media ecosystem that we have to face squarely and try to deal with. Yeah, I, you know, have another maybe natural experiment that I can speak to, which is Australian defamation law, which is like, 
universally pretty terrible and acknowledged to be pretty terrible and I apologize and I'm embarrassed about it but at <laughs> least maybe if we can squeeze some benefit out of it it's that it's an interesting case study um, in what might happen if you have terrible defamation law and you know we, we have both sides of that double-edged sword that you were talking about like on the one hand there was a case I think it was last year where an Australian politician got an $875,000 payout against a QAnon poster for defamation um, about like pedophilia charges and things like that, which were blatantly false. That that person was overseas, out of jurisdiction, never had to pay. But on the other hand, you know, do we really expect there to be chilling effects on, you know, the broader QAnon spreading community um, such that they were paying attention to this or believed otherwise as a result of the judgment? I, I doubt it. And on the other hand, we basically had no real Me Too movement in Australia because there were a number of very high profile cases uh, in which men got defamation judgments against outlets and accusers. So I think that sort of really speaks to the the tension that you're talking about or the double-edged sword that you, you were just sort of talking about. And so then against that sort of bleak background, Let's go back to New York Times v. Sullivan and the this pillar of First Amendment law, which we were saying there are some indications that some signs for it to be, uh, to some sort of rumblings about it and some instability. So can you talk about that? What indications have there been and, and where does it look like it's heading potentially? Yes. Well, uh, in some respects, the conversation about this was uh, launched by Donald Trump, who uh, as a then candidate uh, in the run-up to the 2016 election spoke sort of quite quite famously about wanting to, quote, open up uh, libel law, by which I think he means the opposite. He meant uh, uh, tighten up <laughs> uh, or uh, make available uh, libel law. And essentially uh, saying uh, he, he didn't, he as a public figure and now public official did not care for the Sullivan standard and the fact that it made it difficult um, for him to threaten or bring uh, libel suits against his critics um, or against those that he uh, wanted to say uh, were lying about him. And in truth, um, the legal world sort of laughed at him, right? And said, well, Sullivan, right? Uh, uh, we don't just, we were not, we're not going to open up libel law. Um, uh, Sullivan is rock solid and it is longstanding precedent. And um, it's rooted in some core First Amendment values, uh, both about, uh, both both rooted in First Amendment values about our commitment to dialogue in the uh, in the public sphere, but also commit, uh, rooted in some core uh, values of democracy, right? About how we keep an eye on and have a watchdog function on um, those uh, who are in positions of leadership over us to make sure that they can't wield defamation law as a sort of a hammer to crack down on to threaten lawsuits against their critics and shut down dissent. But it wasn't very many years later from this that we got the first justice on the Supreme Court suggesting uh, that he was willing to do just that. Uh, this was Justice Thomas, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, in a case that was actually involving uh, Me Too litigation or an outgrowth of a Me Too litigation, a case called Cosby versus McKee. It involved a person who was a, a victim of uh, Bill Cosby and um, a, a sort of public figure defamation suit. And in it, the court declined to take the case. Uh, but Justice Thomas wrote separately to say that he uh, thought that they should have taken the case or should take. Uh, he actually concurred. He agreed that this wasn't a good vehicle, uh, but that uh, we should keep our eyes peeled for another such case and we should take it and we should um, overturn Sullivan. Now, Thomas's viewpoint on this is actually a, a somewhat idiosyncratic view. Uh, he roots his view um, on Sullivan in a, a 
question of originalism and his view is that um, libel was not constitutionalized at the time uh, of the founders. Uh, the founders would have thought that the First Amendment didn't stand as a barrier um, to bringing defamation actions. And because of that, uh, he would move us back uh, to that framework uh, and see Sullivan as sort of an act of judicial activism that was inappropriate. We should leave it to the states uh, to decide what kinds of standards they want to have in their common law and move forward on it. It was last year that uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch joined uh, Justice Thomas uh, in another similar case involving a public figure who was uh, seeking a writ of certiorari, a grant of a writ of certiorari at the Supreme Court in a defamation action. And Justice Gorsuch chimed in to say some uh, sort of passing support um, for that originalism notion from Justice Thomas, but more squarely rooting his concern in the kinds of things that we've been talking about. Uh, this concern about widespread disinformation and the changing media landscape uh, and the sort of proliferation of dangerous lies in our public discourse and that unwinding Sullivan might be a tool for doing that. So we now have two justices who have chimed in uh, to say that they would take a case uh, and that um, they would be willing to reconsider some aspect. Um, we don't know how much of, we know for Justice Thomas, um, all of it. Uh, we don't know um, for Justice Gorsuch how much of it, but uh, would reconsider uh, Sullivan and its progeny in some ways. Uh, there is another case that has been sitting um, on the Supreme Court's conference list for a really long time <laughs> that uh, uh, folks uh, watch really closely um, that um, may well either be granted or probably is producing additional um, folks who are writing separately in um, dissents from uh, denial of certiorari, uh, maybe just Gorsuch and Thomas again, but maybe they've got other folks who are um, willing to join in. Uh, and so there is some sense that something that was thought of as largely inconceivable uh, four or five years ago is now something that uh, at least some justices of the Supreme Court are entertaining and um, some are quite eager to do. So I think this is inextricably tied up with members of the court, the justices' view of the media. Um, so tell us about the study that you did with your co-author, Sonia West, about how the Supreme Court is is viewing the media over time. What did you study and what did you find? Yeah, uh, we coded every paragraph that referenced the press in, in uh, or the press function in any way over the entire course of the Supreme Court's history, um, looking to see both the frequency and the tone that the justices of the court use when they speak of the press, and found a, a quite stark uh, decline in um, the justices' sort of positivity about the press. That is, um, for a very, very long time, post-incorporation of the First Amendment in particular, uh, they spoke um, with some frequency about not just the press, but the freedom of the press, uh, casting the press as uh, positive, as um, worthy of protection, even when it wasn't behaving well, of uh, sort of central to our democracy, as core uh, to shaping our uh, public conversations and engaging in that watchdog behavior. Uh, and the characterizations of the press now are either not happening um, at all, they're sort of just not making reference uh, to the press, or when they are happening, increasingly have taken on a negative tone. We have to connect the dots a little to think about what that means in terms of outcome, but in terms of sort of doctrinal shifts, but in terms of the uh, sort of baseline um, well of goodwill and rhetoric about the positive value and role of the press function of news gathering and um, distribution of information on matters of public concern in society, we have moved. We have seen a, a notable shift, and in, in particular during the Roberts Court era, a sort of stark uh, downturn 
in perceptions of the press from justices at the Supreme Court, which probably (laughs) doesn't bode well uh, in terms of outcomes in these sorts of areas. Sullivan is not, it's important for us to note, a press-specific outcome. Uh, That is, it doesn't say the media has a right uh, to criticize or to engage, uh, gets that kind of breathing space on falsehoods in order to encourage it to have uh, commentary on matters of public concern. All of us have it. Uh, but it for sure came about in this uh, through this uh, vehicle where the underlying set of concerns were that the, pre- the press is a good thing, uh, that it's doing good work for us, that it's central, the press function is central uh, to our democracy. And absent that, uh, a lot of these cases may well turn out differently. And so what do you think is driving this? Is it a question of politics and that it's conservative justices who are losing faith in the press? Is it because, you know, we need more journalists on the Supreme Court? <laughs> like, what what is the the factor here that's moving it forward? Uh, so it's, it's really hard to determine. Um, we did uh, parse out, uh, we um, sort of mapped our data onto um, Supreme Court database data and data that clocked uh, the justices Martin Quinn scores, the sort of ideology data that um, helped us to track the influence that ideology plays in all of this. Uh, And it turns out um, that although uh, there is some connection, right, uh, the more conservative a justice is, the more likely they are to speak negatively about the press. And in in the whole of our historical data, Um, It is the case that there's some soft correlation between conservatism and um, press negativity and liberalism and press positivity. Uh, That link is uh, not very strong at all today. Uh, The Roberts Court justices, in fact, when we sort of um, narrow in and look at the justices, the liberal justices who were on the court at the time that our study concluded, were not particularly press positive. In fact, there hadn't been a single positive reference to the trustworthiness of the press from any justice uh, of any ideological background uh, for um, more than a decade. We, we sort of um, clock in our heads that press positivity might be uh, sort of advanced by liberal justices. And in part, the reason that we do that is because some of the major cases that we're talking, you know, we get Sullivan at the hands of, um, you know, the sort of Brennan and Black and Douglas, uh, we think of as um, both uh, liberal lions and also particularly press positive justices in the arc of history. And both of those things are true, but it isn't the case uh, that uh, we can sort of so easily explain these phenomenon. The phenomena are not uh, fully explainable through ideology. Um, It it may well be that um, the changing media landscape is affecting folks across the board. Although our study, uh, we worked carefully to capture not just references to the legacy media, but also to uh, what we sort of called in our code book, the press function, right? So um, towards the tail end of the data set, we're including, uh, for example, so-called citizen journalists, right? Uh, people who are um, engaging in news gathering by taking cell phone footage of something that's happening that's a matter of public concern. And uh, even then, when we take into account uh, that kind of uh, behavior, there just isn't as much uh, rhetorical positivity that surrounds that kind of uh, dialogue, that kind of function, uh, in ways that do concern us. So, without speculating, you know what's motivating the particular justices at all. I think you know it is fair to say that this 
changing modern ecosystem is creating anxiety that is, you know, more broadly uh, causing people to question, you know, whether law is well suited. And, you know, I do have some sympathy for the idea that our modern ecosystem, information ecosystem, is very different. I mean, it's just indisputable that uh, the internet has changed things, that, you know, content travels further and faster than ever before. Um, you can suffer international damage to your reputation in minutes. You know, all of this played out in the Amber Heard trial, um, where we were talking about all of the harmful content and misogynistic content that that was targeted at her and, and how prominent it was. And so I guess the question is, how legally salient are those factual changes? And I'm curious for your thoughts about whether, you know, this quite dramatically changed information ecosystem, whether you feel as a defamation law scholar that anything about the law needs updating or whether those sort of fundamental principles, those first principles still hold true? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a really good question. And um, I think part of uh, the disconnect that we see here is that Justice Gorsuch, his starting proposition seems absolutely unquestionably correct. That is uh, that the advent of the internet and the arrival of uh, social media and the radical shift, uh, the sort of decentralization of our media landscape has changed things. And he, he says, right, shifted in ways that few could have foreseen. And that um, that has to be right. And he's also right that uh, some piece of that means that disinformation and misinformation flourish in ways that they didn't before. I mean, one of the pieces that I think is tricky here in thinking about the law as a tool, and particularly defamation law as a tool, is that if you burrow down and sort of look at Justice Gorsuch's main sets of concerns, they're all um, sort of the kind of concern that you were describing, which is sort of amplification concerns, right? They're concerns, uh, he says in, the in, um, in his opinion from last year, right, that the new media environment facilitates the spread of disinformation, right? Or um, he's worried about falsehoods in quantities that no one could have envisioned 60 years ago. Those are all about the speed, right, of virality of spread, but also the quantity of spread. They're, they're amplification questions, right? Um, and amplification questions don't map really well onto questions about a set of doctrines that uh, focus on liability for defamation, uh, like reputational harm. And so I do think that our questions about how law and policy have to shift to confront and deal with and focus on the changing media landscape are valid ones. I just think that they are sort of, as I said earlier, and as sort of uh, you suggested, right, um, individual liability doctrines might not be the mechanism by which law serves us um, or best serves us or primarily serves us in this realm. Uh, and instead, wider conversations about the interrelationship between the law and the architecture of our public square and the, uh, the interrelationship between uh, law and the behaviors of private platforms uh, and the sort of combination of those regulatory incentives and legal rules and uh, societal norms, I think, are all at play there. But none of those sort of core amplification concerns are perfectly matched to uh, a sort of reputational harm legal doctrine. And that's the place that I think it's easy to get uh, sort of sucked into the starting premise of the notion that, right, oh, okay, Sullivan exists and it makes it difficult to sue for defamation and defamation is about lies. And so if we unwind it 
um, will have less def defamation or uh, uh, more consequences for defamation and uh, fewer lies. And I think our lie problem <laughs> and our amplification of lie problem uh, is so much different in scale and in scope. And our concerns are so amplification focused that um, thinking more creatively about the role that law plays in the amplification space might be a better tree to bark up. Let's leave it there. Renal, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed and in our separate Arbiters of Truth podcast feed. And we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare where you'll get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and our audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>